This is episode 38 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, July 26, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. Contrary to what we tell Californians and others who are thinking of moving here, it does not actually rain year-round in the Pacific Northwest. Each year, we get an 8-10 to week dry period in July and August that we like to call summer before the weather turns back to rain for the next 10 months. If you comb through the last 140 years or so of weather data coming from Seattle and rank all the days in July by how often it rained, the 4th comes out on top by a wide margin. It's rained in Seattle on July 4th about 40% of the time. The next highest is July 2nd, but that's not even really that close, maybe 25%. This meteorological irony, while interesting, is not usually celebrated by the people holding Independence Day cookouts under rain awnings and can't see fireworks through a glut of low-hanging stratus clouds. By the same coincidence, July 5th is, historically speaking, one of the driest days in the month, hence the unofficial start of summer. Start your cookouts, residents of the Pacific Northwest. You have eight weeks starting today to get all of your yearly yard work and construction done. I'm sweating as I write this, entering my third straight week of temperatures hovering near 80 degrees Fahrenheit. That probably doesn't sound like a lot to most of the people in the Northern Hemisphere, but realize that most older homes in the Pacific Northwest were never built with air conditioning. It's completely unnecessary for 340 days out of the year. When the temperature is moderate, the skies are full of rain clouds. And so with no AC and several fans running, the inside temperature roughly matches the outside temperature. It's draining to perspire this much. I don't know how people in southern climates functioned before the invention of aircon, but if I bet I were there, I'd have complained a lot. Yet, here I am, toiling on the forge of tech news, trying to put out a show for your benefit. I hope you guys appreciate my efforts. Oh, and for anybody digging for the almanac trying to antfuck me on weather, the exact weather statistics, just know this is a tech news show, not a weather show. I put the bare minimum of research into this segment, but I assure you the conclusions are true or at least as true as any Seattle-area weather predictions. When preparing for Angry Tech News, I gather stories every day. Stories I want to comment on that you might benefit from hearing about. These stories stay open in a tab until I make time to write them up, pouring my usual level of opinion and sarcasm until I have enough for a show. Then I record. The problem comes when I don't make time to do the write-ups, like this last month, and miss deadlines on the show. It turns out the news keeps going whether I write it up or not. The stories keep piling up and you sadly go without your sarcasm fix. It's a vicious cycle. And so today you get treated to some old news by uh, up to a month in some cases. The stories are still juicy if stale and my browser is running out of memory holding all these tabs open. So it's time to quit procrastinating. So without further ado, here are some stories that you may have missed because you weren't getting any tech news or at least not any that was angry. From the anti-social networks department, ByteDance, the Chinese company behind the uncomfortably popular social media app TikTok, is in hot water yet again for the app's unbroken record of failing to respect their users' privacy. Last month, BuzzFeed ran an expose based on a leaked audio from internal meetings at TikTok, which revealed that a, quote, master admin has keys to the whole database. This flies in the face of repeated claims 
that information gathered in the U.S. stays in the U.S., including the sworn testimony in front of Congress that this doesn't happen. In response to the leak, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr called for the app to be banned from the Apple and Google app stores for suspicion of espionage, among other things. The irony, of course, is that banning TikTok is one of the many things that President Trump did via executive order while he was in office and that the Biden administration subsequently reversed on his first day in the White House. For their part, TikTok responded to the leak by updating their privacy policy. According to the policy update on their site, they may now automatically collect biometrics, a.k.a. facial recognition. The policy states that the data will be used for only non-personally identifying operations, such as enabling video effects, content moderation, demographic classification, and personalized ads. Of course, if you think that this isn't enough data to personally identify you via fingerprinting, or that they won't do exactly that with it despite what their policy, which has enough loopholes to drive a surveillance state through, says, then I've got a facial recognition database to sell you. As an aside, the sketchiest part of what I just read is that TikTok will now be doing, quote, demographic classification on all of its users using facial recognition software. The only use case for automatically classifying users by race is to sow division between them, often in the course of trying to make a buck, a process that we call marketing. Of course, driving wedges between people based on something so superficial as skin color is the kind of thing that gets social justice racists up in the morning. And since the social justice ideology seems to have infected every corporate culture in Silicon Valley, I suppose it was only a matter of time before they found a way to completely automate their racism. The privacy policy also explicitly says that they do not sell personal information. But it does say they can, quote, share business information, including face prints and voice prints for business purposes. Selling data is a business purpose, though, to be fair, they're probably not selling it. It seems unlikely the Chinese Communist Party government pays Chinese companies for their data. They probably just take it. Regardless, the thing we should all realize by now is that this company leaks data like fishnet hosiery on a submarine. ByteDance already paid $92 million this year in class action settlement for violating Illinois' Biometric Privacy Act, in which they admitted sharing harvested personal data worldwide, including to China. TikTok is currently enjoying the network effect as one of the most popular social media platforms on the planet, but the people running it are exactly the kind of greedy corporatists that young wannabe communists rail about when they use phrases like late-stage capitalism. They'll sell you out to the highest bidder in a second if it means they can make a buck. The highest bidder in this case is undoubtedly the Chinese government. If you do happen to have a TikTok account, I'd urge you to get off the platform. I would, but let's be honest, my words are no match for their rapid-fire, short-form, meaningless videos. Crack cocaine to the attention deficit generation. Screw it. I'll urge anyway. Get off TikTok. From the Don't Track Me Bro department, some good news on the privacy front. Firefox 102, released last month, has a new feature to strip tracking information out of the URLs that you click. If you've ever looked at URLs, you know the type. You've got a perfectly normal-looking link to a website, followed by a question mark, some sort of ID tag like FBCLID, and an equal sign, and then a long series of hex garbage that doubles the length of the string. Tracking companies append these IDs, which are unique, to the outbound links so that when you click on a link, the linked website can take that ID and feed it back into the tracking network. This gives them an exact indicator of what you clicked on and where, allowing them over millions of clicks to get an exact picture of what stories get shared, what goes viral, and where to place links on a page to maximize the chance of pulling you in. 
all for the purpose of refining their psychological algorithm and becoming more effective at manipulating you, usually for the purpose of selling ads or manipulating elections. When enabled, the Firefox feature will strip tracking data from query strings used by Olytix, Drip, Vero, HubSpot, Marketo, and Facebook. That list, I think, is hard-coded right now. Facebook is the only one of these that I'm familiar with, even though I don't use the platform, but I do still find myself endlessly stripping the FBCLID tags out of links that people share, people who can't be bothered to sanitize their URLs themselves. As a side note, Angry Tech News always sanitizes URLs of trackers before putting them into the show notes. You should check out the show notes at angrytechnews.com. As far as I can tell, the feature is not user configurable and does not support adding your own tracker definitions to the list. For example, the tracking tags being added to MP3 download links in RSS feeds by certain hosts to track who is downloading a particular episode and tie it to a particular app or user. But I digress. To be clear, there are plenty of third-party browser extensions that will strip these tags for you. But this is the first time I've seen the feature implemented in a core browser, so good on you, Firefox. To turn the feature on, go into Settings, Privacy and Security, and change Enhanced Tracking Protection to Strict. The solution is far from complete. Query string appends are kind of an older style of tracking. There are other ways for these tracking networks to invade your privacy online, such as cookies and JavaScript widgets used for browser fingerprinting. Bleakbean Computer does note that changing to strict may cause issues when using particular sites, but I assure you, it should only interfere with sites that you should be avoiding anyway due to their invasive JavaScript, non-standard HTML, and predatory data practices. From the Seeing is Believing department, this story caught my eye. A tech startup called Mojo Vision has announced a prototype for a smart contact lens. The eponymously named Mojo Lens contains a micro-LED screen, half a millimeter across, which has, according to Mojo's press release, 14,000 pixels per inch. Which sounds like a lot, but I did the math and it works out to a 280-pixel screen, give or take. The smart lenses also boast an ARM M0 processor and a proprietary 5 GHz low-latency radio. They include a suite of accelerometers, gyroscopes, and magnetometers for eye tracking, and a custom operating system and UI operated by eye movements, as well as medical-grade batteries to power the whole thing. The whole package is pretty impressive when you realize that they want to put the whole thing directly in contact with your eyeball, a prospect which titillates the tech enthusiast in me and scares the living crap out of my inner IT professional and security tester. And that's not even mentioning the part of me that gets all oogied out at the prospect of putting anything in my eye, let alone a suite of displays, sensors, radios, and batteries. But I'm old. I'm so old, I remember a time when phones were permanently attached to the wall. I know how to rewind a cassette tape using a pencil. So maybe this technology isn't for me. It's a fundamental truth that a person's acceptance of technology is directly proportional to the kind of thing they grew up with. So maybe this will be big with the smartphone and TikTok generation. The most fundamental invention I remember from my childhood was a magic box with buttons that let my dad change the channel on the TV without making me get up and walk across the room to do it. So I'm probably not the target audience for this. I can't wait for the follow-up story of these things getting hacked and causing hallucinations, acid trips, and severe corneal burns. So if you're listening to this and it gives you the urge to become more of a cyborg, let me know why in the feedback. Maybe your eyes just aren't scratchy and uncomfortable enough. Maybe you want to find out what it's like when a hacker controls what you see. Maybe you just think it's too easy to click that I am not a robot button and want to step up your game to hard mode. Let me know. <laughs> 
from the you-will-own-nothing department. Ubisoft has gone and done what I've been warning about for years with regards to digital libraries, and gamers are shocked and angry about it. The company has decided to stop selling Assassin's Creed Liberation, a companion game to 2012's Assassin's Creed 3. The implied message for gamers who paid money for the game, screw off, you've played enough. As initially reported, the game was removed from purchase from Steam on July 11th. It was further announced the game, quote, will not be accessible after September 1st, even for people who purchased it. Several gaming blogs and Reddit threads even reported that the game would be forcibly removed from players' Steam libraries. While it makes sense for a company that maintains centralized multiplayer servers to stop supporting them eventually, a true argument for decentralized player-managed servers if ever I've heard one, although I think gamers lost that battle a decade ago, it doesn't make sense for an offline single-player game to stop working. Understandably, this caused a major gamer backlash. A day later, Ubisoft clarified that the people who purchased the game would still have access to the single-player content. It was only the multiplayer and DLC that were being disabled, they said. There's no way to know if the company merely sucked at communication or if they changed their minds in light of the backlash, but nice backpedal Ubisoft. The move mollified some gamers, but the DLC part of that is still pretty shitty. The DLC runs under the same mostly single-player model as the rest of the game, and if I may speculate wildly, is only disabled because the game has DRM, which requires an online verification before it will run. People who paid real money for the DLC continue to be screwed. Ultimately, the problem is this. We have been conditioned for more than a decade now to purchase digital goods which are stored in someone else's cloud servers. We must authenticate ourselves before we are allowed to use things that we purchased and the company that sold it to us has the ability, even if not the right, to take it away from us at a moment's notice with no reason, no excuse, and not even a notification. We don't own these goods, not in the classic sense. We, the public consumers, have been conned into paying full price for a license to do something which confers no ownership, no possession, and no durable rights at all. This is what you get when you invest in a digital library. Can Ubisoft legally delete a game from your library? I'm certain they gave themselves that right in their EULA that nobody read. I tend to think most EULAs aren't worth the paper they're printed on. The real question is whether Ubisoft has the ability to disable a product that you legally purchased. If they do, you never really owned that product at all. And finally, from the miscellaneous headlines department, some shorter stories. Twitter is officially very, very sorry for getting caught doing exactly what they said they didn't do, covertly using account security data for targeted advertising. For the last several years, Twitter has asked or demanded that users provide a phone number or email address to authenticate their accounts. On the page where they demand this information is a message that this information will only be used to safeguard your account. Well, it turns out that was a lie. According to a complaint by the U.S. Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission, Twitter was also exploiting that information commercially meaning they sold targeted ads against the data. In a settlement last month, the company has agreed to pay a $150 million fine, which, according to an FTC spokesman, reflects the seriousness of the allegations. Researchers at security firm Reversing Labs have identified yet another supply chain attack using the highly popular NPM package repository. The attackers, in what is known as a typo-squatting attack, registered a number of packages with very similar names to highly popular NPM packages. For example, popular package Ionic has an icon package, Ion icons, Ionic icons. The attackers registered Ionic-icon, Ionic-io, Ionic-io, and icon package. 
which are not real packages but look like it. A developer who typoed the name of their desired package then would not get an error when they tried to download the malicious package. Instead, they would just get a package that would infect every computer that ran that developer's software, stealing data and credentials and sending it to the attacker's cloud server. NPM admins have removed most of the malicious packages identified by reversing labs, but the only real solution to this kind of vulnerability is for developers to pay attention to what the hell they're doing and stop writing bugs into their code. Since we know developers are not capable of this task, expect more attacks of this type in the future. The European Union has officially passed the Digital Markets and Digital Services Acts. For a deep dive on what the DMA does, listen to Angry Tech News number 31, where I spent several minutes on it at least. With its passage, the European citizens can expect significant changes to the services offered by the named gatekeeper companies, which we're pretty sure are Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. If you're lucky, you'll see improvements to those platforms, messenger interoperability, app sideloading, data portability, and the like. You might get some of those things, but remember, Silicon Valley companies, being for-profit companies first and foremost, are quite good at avoiding things that cost them a ton of money. So more likely you'll see app restrictions, more permissive and egregious EULAs, and services, quote, unavailable in your region. The DSA, passed at the same time, is your bog standard authoritarian wet dream law forcing online platforms to censor users according to the current government narrative. For that one, just expect more restrictions on what you say, post, and think. After all, Europe has no First Amendment that protects freedom of speech. Or, for that matter, a Second Amendment, which would protect the First Amendment. And another story out of the EU comes the European Transport Safety Council, which has mandated that as of July 6th, all cars sold in the EU would be mandated to have black box computers, which report to the government and law enforcement e-vehicles speed, braking, steering wheel angle, incline on the road, and whether various safety systems are in operation, starting with the seatbelts. This data is theoretically only of interest right after a crash, but the ETSC says that initially the data will the ETSC says that initially the data won't be available to insurance companies, only law enforcement. However, I've never seen a data collection program that didn't eventually outgrow its stated goals. And do not doubt that if they thought they could get away with collecting all data in real time, they would. The most commonly deployed technology of this type is called Intelligence Speed Assistant a system of cameras and computers which scans the road ahead for speed limit signs and automatically engages a governor on the engine to force the driver to obey. Such systems are now mandatory in the UK as of this year. As indicated by the ETSC, the eventual plan is to give law enforcement a sort of remote control, which can be used to disable, speed limit, or even steer any car on the road to the side. Of course, the government says this would only be used in case of a criminal offense and would never, ever be used inappropriately such as if there was an Amber Alert, a domestic dispute, a driver with a low social credit score, driving while Republican, or simply a cop really jonesing for a donut. I suppose we can trust that as well as we can trust anything else said by someone in the government. And finally, we leave off with yet another thing for IT professionals to worry about when managing high-security assets. Bleeping Computer reports on a security researcher from Ben-Gurion University in Israel who has invented yet another way to exfiltrate data from an air-gapped computer. For those not in the know, an air-gapped system is one with no connection to the internet, hence the, the gap in the ethernet cable. You'd use these for extremely high security systems or when testing untrusted software such as malware or Microsoft automatic updates. The vulnerability has to do with the SATA cable in a PC, one of many unshielded wires inside of a computer. 
As any electronics buff can tell you, an unshielded wire turned on and off at regular intervals has another name. It's called an antenna. The researcher demonstrated a proof of concept where carefully timed hard drive writes and reads caused the SATA cable to emit a radio signal, which could be picked up by a radio in a nearby computer. Of course, there's no need to go out and panic just yet. To exploit this, an attacker needs to get their receiver in close physical proximity to the air-gapped system, within about a meter, according to the paper. The method is limited to a few bits per second, so you're not going to see, you're not likely to see people transferring large databases this way. And they have to get their custom malware out of the system in the first place. Plus, the whole thing can kind of be defeated by a Faraday cage. Still, it highlights just how many weird, unexpected avenues of attack there are in computing, complex systems and all that. Do I expect to be reading stories of industrial espionage performed this way? Not really. Not, not least because getting hacked like this is not the kind of thing that companies would ever advertise or admit to. But it could make a fun plot point if I ever write my spy thriller. Angry thanks to Brian Janak, Sean McHuden, Rhett Vandenberg, Raymond Zorger, Curtis Peterson, Steve Edward, Chris Reamer, Sharky, and Don Mills, whose recurring PayPal donations remind me that there is still an audience for this show. Unless you've just forgotten to turn off the automatic payments, in which case, keep doing exactly what you're doing. As well, to the countless people who have boosted Angry Tech News using a podcasting 2.0 compliant app. I'd attempt to list them, but the amount of support pouring into my humble lightning node has greatly outstripped the ability of my crappy homespun management scripts to handle, meaning I've got some dev work ahead of me. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we do not charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $10, $100, or $1,000. Still waiting for that one. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose, at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry, stay 